Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 262nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Melanie Milam. Melanie is an advisor with Gateway Financial Partners, a super OSJ affiliated with LPL Financial located in Texas, where she oversees $150 million of assets under management for her 110 client households. What's unique about Melanie, though, is her approach to connecting with clients, mostly in the oil and gas industry, through a tried-and-true list of 34 questions that she's built specifically geared towards maximizing the amount of time clients talk about themselves to not only gain better perspective on their goals, but to create deeper, longer-lasting relationships. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Melanie, her husband, began her firm by leveraging her knowledge as a CPA and his managerial experience and personal connections in the oil and gas industry, which led them to find her niche market. The way that Melanie's firm segments clients into tiers to align their services and provide more specialized gifts and experiences for her top clients, and how Melanie's faith drove her to obtain her Certified Kingdom Advisor, CKA, designation so that she can connect with her faith-based clients and give back to her community. We also talked about how Melanie managed to begin her firm while homeschooling six children, why Melanie believes it's so important to create stability in your own financial life before launching a business to help advise clients in theirs, And how is the realization that Melanie does her best work when she's in front of her clients that helped her to build the courage to begin hiring a team and delegating the paperwork to ensure that she's maximizing her time in front of her clients? And be certain to listen to the end, where Melanie shares her can-have-it-all, just maybe not at the same time, mindset about the women in financial services industry, the way Melanie weaves her faith into her advice and her own life and business decisions and how Melanie's passion for helping others inspired her sons to come and join the firm and further build client trust. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Melanie Milam. Welcome, Melanie Milam, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and just hearing more about how you've built your advisory firm over the years. There's there's a lot of discussion these days in the industry around getting more focused into into niches and specializations. It's a theme that we often talk about here on the podcast. And and you know, one of the challenges I know a lot of advisors have is is sort of this, well, I guess really dual challenge of how do I figure out what niche to go after? And even if I kind of have an inkling of one to go after, like do I start there or do I just start broadly and get any clients I can when I'm getting started and then and then later like get around to my my niche once I'm ready to focus in more I've hit some critical mass. And I know you you have built a very focused niche advisory firm kind of deeply into the oil and gas industry in Texas where you are and really focused there from the start. And so I'm just excited to hear about what the journey looks like of building advisory firm trying to build into a into a focused niche area and just building that way from the start. And, and how it compounds over time. So basically, my background was a C- CPA. When I graduated from school, I worked at a CPA firm, a regional firm here in Midland, Texas, for about five years. 
My husband's background, however, is in the oil industry. At the time we met, he was in Houston, Texas, working for Getty. And then um, at the time we married, he was the only one in his office that ended up with a transfer here to Midland, Texas with Texaco. Now Texaco, during the Texaco-Getty merger. And so then he was with Texaco until the Chevron-Texaco merger. And at that point, Chevron, they had different plans for him. He was the area manager over about 150 people at the time, and his people loved him. I mean, he was he was just a, an, an incredible manager. And so when this merger happened, one of the things that he wanted to do is he wanted to make sure his 150 people got what they wanted. So if they wanted to stay with the new company, he helped them to stay. And if they wanted to leave, he helped them to leave. And, and he realized in this process, so many of like the pumpers and stuff, they honestly didn't realize that they had both a pension and a 401k. They thought, oh my goodness, I have to pick. You know, it shows here that I have this pension money and have this 401k money. Do I just pick the highest? So, so he had the opportunity to really educate them on what they had. And once he got everybody situated, then we decided the job that, that Chevron offered him wasn't something that we were interested in. So we had always wanted to be in business together. And with my CPA background and his managing people and really in that role, managing budgets and stuff, he was able to take that and and our financial advisor that we use said, hey, have y'all ever thought about being financial advisors? And up until that point, we had never thought about that. But at that point, that sounded like a great idea to us. And once John got all of his people situated, he went into Chevron and he said, okay, I want to take the package. I I don't want to stay with the new company going forward, which for him ended up being two years worth of severance, which because I'm super frugal, we have six kids. So I've always been very, um, my kids will call me cheap, uh, very cheap. And so I was like, yeah, we could take that two years and we can manage with six kids like wow (laughs) exactly we're just i feel like i'm treading water with three well and in the process of when when our kids started going to school god called me to homeschool my kids so we were homeschooling at the time. John was leaving his job. We were going to start this new business. And and our mentor, the, the advisory we were under said, okay, number one thing, you need to decide what your niche is going to be. You need to figure out a niche market. And for us, the oil and gas industry was a perfect fit. I mean, that's what we knew. And we knew those people and we enjoyed working with those people, down to earth, good, salt of the earth kind of people. And so that's kind of how we started. And we realized by doing it that way, by not being a generalist, that we there's very possibly it could be a while before we actually made any money in the business. So it is challenging to know your niche from the beginning and to really start focusing on that immediately and be prepared to potentially not make money for a little while. Although to be fair, I feel like it's not like most advisors I know who start out as generalists and cold call anybody they can find, like have a much better, <laughs> faster path to income in the early years. Like it, it, it sort of just sucks for everyone, no matter how you start. But I, I am curious just to hear more about that dynamic of a manager saying like you should be picking a niche, you should be picking something to focus into from the start, but you're getting started from scratch. Did you have second 
thoughts about this? Were you just all in, okay, let's go. It sounds like the best strategy. Was it sort of a hedging like, well, it seems like a good thing in the long run and we've got some savings built up now because of the severance payment. So let's go for it because we feel like we have the on-ramp. Like, How are you thinking about focusing into oil and gas from the start? I honestly thought that was an incredible idea because of my husband's contacts. John had so many great contacts in the oil and gas industry that we were like, well, that really is a perfect fit. And and because I had already also gotten some contacts just by living in Midland, lots of the tax returns we did at the CPA firm that I worked for were oil and gas related. And so when he mentioned that, that made sense to us. And we were like, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to just you know, be advisors for anybody. I don't, you know, I don't really want people just walking in. Oh, I've got, you know, $10,000. Can you invest it for me? Because I knew I wasn't going to, we weren't going to get anywhere quickly by doing that. And we've always had this idea of we wanted to, we wanted to provide that wow experience for our clients. Well, you can't do that if you have a million clients that, that just doesn't work. And so we knew it had to be a smaller set, a smaller group in order to to really effectively and consistently provide that experience. And so when he had that idea, that recommendation, we said, we were on board. We said, okay, well, we know ours will be people that are transitioning in the oil and gas business. Either they're moving to a different oil company or they're retiring altogether. And so that's kind of how we started. And our first assignment, we had another advisor that was also mentoring under him who lived in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And at that time, it was during the ConocoPhillips merger. And so our mentor said, hey, why don't y'all temporarily relocate you and your six kids up to Bartlesville, Oklahoma and help this other advisor who's a little ahead of you open his office there. And that way- The person who made this suggestion (laughs) probably didn't have six children. No, they had two grown children. (laughs) So we were like, okay, well, that sounds interesting. But, you know, we were homeschooling and so we're like, okay, I can work, you know, in the business. I'll be up there from this hour. I'll start at eight in the morning and I'll be there till like three in the afternoon and then I'll go home and I'll have already put the, the you know, kids to work on their school stuff. We'll have a nanny in there, you know, just kind of monitoring them and then I'll go home and, and finish doing school stuff. And this is what, this is what our day will look like as we build this business. <laughs> and so, so John, my husband, he was like, okay, that sounds good. Well, let's, Let's find a place and let's temporarily move to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And so we did. We found this duplex downtown, which was wonderful. We could literally walk anywhere, but the duplex was built in the ni- in like 1910. So it was older than the hills and a lot of stuff didn't work, but we just went up there. We didn't take any of our furniture or anything. We went to garage sales. We found furniture. We, our, the kids, you know, we had so many of them that we just had tents in the, in the second bedroom because it was only two bedrooms. So in the second bedroom, we had tents and we had two in each tent. So that they could pretend we were like camping. Yeah, it's like an, it's a family camping adventure. Yeah, it was. It was such an adventure. So for 10 months, we were in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, helping this other advisor open his office. But in the meantime, we also ended up with some amazing clients that I still have to this day that we got from that ConocoPhillips merger in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And our kids too, we have great memories of the funny stuff, the hard stuff. 
that happened, you know, during that time, that 10 months when we were starting this business. So there are a few things that struck me there, just as you were talking about how you formulated who you're going after, that you had said, like, you you wanted to have a more wow experience for the folks that you were serving. And so to you, that just meant we have to have a more focused group of clients. We can't do the just lots of clients, anything for everyone. Exactly. That that was, I guess, part of the focus or theme for you in the first place. Yes. I'm a very forward-thinking person. So I'm not just thinking about today, but I'm thinking about 5, 10, 15 years down the road. What do I want this business to look like? And how do I want it to grow? And all along the way, we were incredibly deliberate about from the very beginning how we built it. Now, the other thing was, is I knew that, that we were going to be the turtle. I'm the turtle. I'm not the hare. You know, I'm not out there. I'm not wanting to buy a bunch of people's other business and then sort through it. Like I just wanted to be very deliberate and I wanted to build this incredible business that I felt like someday at least some of my children would want to be a part of. Or or that was what I was hoping. I was never going to force that on them. But that was always my prayer was that someday that, that they will carry out this legacy that their dad and I have started. Then help me understand a little bit more. You had framed kind of specifically, like our niche is going to be people who are transitioning in the oil and gas business. So where did that come from? I mean, I get the oil and gas business part because John had the background and you had the connections from doing returns and and you're you're in Midland where there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of oil yeah. uh, and gas business. But like why people who are transitioning? I mean, I can imagine a lot of ways to carve up a focus around oil and gas. Where did that come from as a particular framing? Well, so where that came from is 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 living amongst the booms and the bust. What we witnessed were there there were very specific times when people changed careers in the oil business as as we, you know, in the last 20 years. And that would typically be during a usually during a boom, but it could be during a, a bust as well that they've been with one oil company either now during a boom, they get a better offer from a different oil company or during a bust they've gotten laid off and so they need to move because and find a new job. And and most people continue to stay with oil companies. And why do they do that? Because oil companies have incredible benefits. So you have, you know, like for Chevron, who in has ended up being the majority of my niche market, they have a pension and a 401k. So I know if I'm working with someone who not only has their 401k that they've put money in and, and the company is matched, but they also have this pension that they had nothing to do with the companies just building up for them, that for me, I knew they were going to come to the table with a substantial amount of assets. And so that is even to this day, if a pumper is retiring out in the field, this guy may have a high school degree, definitely doesn't have a college degree, may not even have a degree, just a little pumper. That's all he's done. He's been with Chevron for 25, 30, 35 years. He's going to come to me with a million dollars typically or more. And so I knew I could look down the road. And I said, I could see if we could get people who are leaving one oil company and going to another oil company or they're retiring, they're going to have a substantial amount of investable assets for us to immediately be able to work with. 
Interesting. So, so kind of this framing of the appeal of specifically those who are in transition, the oil and gas business is just, it means dollars will be in motion, or if you're going from business or coming, which means you're leaving some other business to be coming to the current one, like any of those transitions means an old 401k has to be moved, an old pension, someone's got to make a decision, pension versus lump sum, which pension payment if they're going to take a pension payment. And so just the the fact that decisions and, and motion comes when the transitions come, I guess is essentially why you why you went to the transitions. Absolutely. That's exactly why, because you're exactly right. There's money that's on the table because they're not typically, if they come to get advice, I'm not going to advise them to keep that 401k just sitting there at an old company, right? So then you give them their options of these are the, you know, these are the things that you can do. These are the four things that you can do with that money. And, you know, and what would you like to do with that going forward? And, and and so typically they wanted to go, they, you know, they were ready to have, they were ready to have it on the old company. They didn't necessarily want to move it to the new company because think about that with an oil, with the oil business, you have all these ups and downs and ups and downs and you can have your job and then you lose your job. And so let's not put it in a, in a new company where you don't know how long you're going to be with. So for them, and they obviously didn't want to take it out as cash and pay the taxes on it. So for them, it made sense. Okay. What would it take for you to be my advisor and let's move it with you and you invest so how did this get started when you said like we okay we actually want to go after this right john's left texaco in the midst of the merger you're ready to get started the business you're coming together to get started you've made this decision that we're going to go after folks in the in the oil and gas business because you've, you've got all these roots there but how does that actually get going when you launch and get started i mean i'm, I'm imagining john doesn't literally like go back to all of his former employees and say like, hey, I used to manage your career. Now I can manage your retirement account. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's just transition this relationship. Like, What did you actually start doing to begin to get clients and position yourselves as advisors as, in this niche, as experts in this niche when you're just getting going in it? Well, so because we had those 10 months first up in Bartlesville with that advisor up there, and, and it was a perfect time because it was right in the midst of that ConocoPhillips merger, that one of the things we did was we did seminars. You know, that was back in the day, the old day of seminars. And we had a great restaurant there and we would put on these seminars. And that's kind of how we started getting clients in the business was by using seminars. And so then when we transitioned back to Midland and we opened our office here, that was one of the ways that we started kind of reaching out to people was through those seminars. And then, you know, John would would figure out people in the industry that he had heard were thinking about retiring. So we would basically send a letter to him and said, you know, introduce ourselves as, you know, this is our new career path. And, you know, we'd love to sit down with you and just look over your picture. Even if you're thinking about using someone else, you know, it's always great to get a second opinion. And that's what we did a lot at first was give people that idea of providing a second opinion. Okay. So, you know, maybe... <laughs> We're, we're new. You knew us in a different context. Like, you don't have to give us everything as the primary yet. Just let us, let us be able to share some thoughts as a second opinion. Just, I, I guess, it, it, like it's a lower risk, lower stakes way, I guess, for getting in front of them while you're trying to reposition yourself from what they knew you as previously to what you're hoping they'll know you as going forward. Exactly. So very few, or at least back then, very few financial advisors were also CPAs. 
So I had that CPA knowledge that in our letter, in our introductory letter to people, we could tell them, you know, that the money that you're thinking that you're moving potentially from your old company is all pre-tax money. And so one of the things that's going to be very important to you is to know the tax ramifications of every decision that you're making about what to do with this money so that you don't make huge mistakes with it. So that little bit of edge there really, truly helped in the beginning for people to go, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I need to know that tax knowledge. And if they know the tax knowledge and they have an idea of, of the transition process, because, you know, John has already been through that transition process because that was in the letter too, that we had already walked through that and kind of knew all the steps. It was very enticing for them to at least come and sit down with us and talk to us. And so this just went out to any folks that you knew that John knew previously to just introduce, I think you'd said like reintroduce yourselves. Exactly. So basically anybody that he thought was within five years or less of retirement. That's kind of who we targeted because we knew that those people, when you're in that window of, you know, hey, I think I might retire in five years. A lot of times you want to know, okay, but where am I? Is that feasible? And and one of the things that that are that the Chevron guys did not know is the fact that from Chevron, you can retire in the year you're going to be 55. As long as you leave money there in your 401k, you can withdraw from that money until 59 and a half without that 10% penalty. So, so many of the guys, no clue about that. And so that was something else that we were able in our letter to articulate of, of hey, come find out how you can do that. How can you retire early? And we can give you those helpful hints without that 10% penalty. So it was little things like that. And and mainly from his contacts and my tax knowledge that we kind of put those two together to encourage people to come and just sit down with us one time. That was my goal is if I can get them in front of me, especially husband and wife one time, then then I really feel like we've got a good in the door to where we can help them see the value that John and I bring to the table. And then talk to us a little bit more about the seminar side. What were you doing? What were you what were you speaking on? Like what what were the topics and and how did you get the word out? What was the seminar marketing process for you? So on the seminar marketing process, we basically, you know, he still had his list from, you know, when he worked at Chevron or Texaco, but, you know, before it came Chevron. And so we would pick about 25, 30 people that we wanted to, you know, send an invite for this seminar. And we would make it stuff that we felt like was relevant to them, you know, preparing to retire, or if we wanted to do a little bit older group, um, when to turn on social security, you know, just those different topics that we knew would be interesting to them. And we would always provide a meal as well. So people, a lot of times, especially back then, love coming for a free meal. It's a free meal. We can hear, you know, hopefully get one good idea. We know these people, they're not threatening. And so we had good success in the beginning, kind of using that seminar idea and encouraging people just to come and, and you know, hear the topic, eat a meal. And then we would talk to them after the seminar and, and just with those same kind of ideas of, hey, have you thought about retiring early? Or do you know what that would look like with Chevron? Did you realize you could retire before 59 and a half? Just some of those little enticing things to where we could get a meeting scheduled one-on-one with that couple. 
So I'm struck, though, that the topics weren't necessarily super deep and specific to the niche space. Like it's not it's not as though you were doing topics on, you know, 10 ways to maximize your Texaco options or whatever it was at the time. These were still more broad based topics, just your marketing targeted people in the energy industry. Yes, that's what it was. So it was our marketing is what targeted people in the oil and gas industry. Because that's the people we were looking for. So was there something different in the marketing just to speak to the more? Why was it working for you in the energy industry in particular, as opposed to just anybody in the greater Midland area who wants to come and learn about Social Security? Well, so we didn't advertise in the paper. We sent invitations out to the people that we were wanting to target. Which was a contact list that you had built directly or that John had from his prior work, as opposed to like buying a mailing list for thousands of dollars. Right. And he wanted to send it to people who already knew him, who already trusted him from when they worked under him or one of their friends worked under him. So people that already knew that he was a man of integrity, that he was honest, that he had these great character qualities. And and so we weren't going from a cold call type situation or a cold card type situation. It was people that he had already built that trust with who knew him personally and knew him as a boss, that we could say, hey, come listen to the seminar, have a meal, and then let's see if if you might want to sit down with us. And so the fact that he knew them and had them in the Rolodex, knew a little bit of their situation to at least potentially qualify that they're probably a good person to have in your seminar, more likely to have them attend because they already had the name recognition to John. And so that that just makes the marketing process more efficient and cheaper than $7,000 on 20,000 mailers to everybody in the zip code of such and such. Exactly. No, it really, it made it a lot more efficient. Plus, it meant that we had a higher probability of people actually coming because they, you know, that, like I said, they knew John. And they trusted John. And so they were like, well, let's just go see what this seminar is about. And let's talk to him about how he envisions, you know, his career as a financial advisor. And, you know, let's find out what he knows now that he's transitioned out. What tips does he have for us if we're ready to leave Chevron? And so how did it go as you just got started <laughs> with this in the early years? I guess after you like came back from Bartlesville and 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 back to actually, you know, building in your in your home territory. I mean, did did you start doing this and it just took off? Did you start doing this and like still a brutal grind for a long, long time? How, how did it go? It was challenging when we got back here, when we found our office space and, and really started working. And honestly, year one and year two back here went pretty well. I mean, for, you know, for it being a new business, you know, and everything, year three was okay. Year four was awful. You want to talk about low point? Year four was low point. So I crack up. We were the other day, I had the the son, Joel, that works here for me in in the office. He's my licensed admin assistant. We were going through some of of our old tax files because I'm trying, my, my husband, so John is a pack rat. That's one of the things. And he keeps everything. And so we're at the point where in our storage, because we have a storage building, I'm like, okay, we got to get rid of some of the storage stuff so the garage stuff can go to storage. So we, one of the things we brought up to, to, to get rid of was old tax files. And so we pulled out the old tax file from the fourth year in business. And Joel was like, oh my gosh, mom, y'all only made 30,000 that year. And you had six kids. And I'm like, I started laughing. I said, 
I know. It was a terrible year. Let's, 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 <laughs> let's thank that, tex, that uh, uh, Texaco severance payment once more. I mean, let's thank it. The other thing that happened that year, because he remembered, he was like, but we had that amazing vacation. So one of our big things, since I homeschool, one of our big things was seeing the United States. I wanted all my kids to see the United States or as much of it as possible before they graduated from my homeschool. So before they graduated, we had gone to like 45 of the states, 42 different state capitals, I mean, been all over the United States. So in that year that we made 30,000, our big trip that we had planned was we were doing kind of the Northwest. It was kind of a big loop and we were going to be gone for four weeks. And I had gone on Priceline and, you know, done all the bookings and we were, we were trying to eat on a budget, obviously, because we weren't making a lot. Uh, but we wanted our kids, you know, still to have this incredible experience. So we get back and we were laughing because it ended up that I think our daily eating was less than $25 a day. And that includes, you know, we got free breakfast at the hotel. We had lunch out to eat somewhere and, and like not not horrible places. We would go to Chili's or a place like that, Applebee's. And then we would have sandwiches for dinner. My friends were laughing. They were like, who feeds their kids on vacation for $25 a day? Like, you are the ultra cheapest person we know. But we did not miss out on that vacation on that year that was so horrible that we only made $30,000. So year five comes and I'm like, John, you know what? There were several things. One is, so we were in the same office, okay? And even though we initially thought that, oh my gosh, we want to work together. This is going to be amazing. You know, we've always dreamed of this. Well, it's a little more challenging than if you've ever worked with your spouse and especially over an extended period of time, it is a lot more challenging than what you're anticipating. So we are both, John and I are both type A. We want to be in charge. And since it was just the two of us, like we both wanted to be in charge, but we didn't have any little peons to tell what to do. So that made it really difficult because he's trying to tell me, I'm trying to tell him. And in the office space we have, my desk is on one side of the room and his is on the, was on the opposite side of the room. So I could see his desk at all times. He is a messy, I'm a neat. So he's got piles everywhere. Mine is completely neat. I finally told him, I said, honey, I love you dearly. And I really think that it is time for you to go back in the old business because I can't look at this mess every day anymore at the office because I'm looking at it at home. So I can't be at home looking at it. And, and I said, my office space like needs to be clean. And you don't listen. Like I'm trying to tell you what to do and you don't listen. And so of course he's like, well, I'm trying to tell you what to do and you don't listen. So at that point, we both felt like for the sake of, 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 you know, we don't believe in divorce. So one of us was going to die. So it was like, okay. So he started, we started praying about him going back in the oil business. Well, he ended up getting multiple different calls to go back in and finally went back into the oil business. Basically at the end of our fifth year, he went back in, which was good for everyone. Although I was terrified and he didn't know this before he went back in, but I was like, oh my goodness, God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to have this business and, and serve these clients in the way I want to and grow it and have these kids that I'm still homeschooling? Like the kids are in the front office. So, you know, I bring them to work. They're up there doing their school. I'm working on work. I'm meeting with clients. But then in between clients, I'm going and answer, answering questions on their schoolwork. 
So it was like, I, one day I was just like, okay, God, what are we going to do here? Because I don't know how I'm going to do this. And God was like, Melanie, like, I got this. All you have to do is just be obedient. You just be obedient and I will equip you for all that I've called you to do. So you just chill and I'll bring you the clients. I will bring you those prospects and I'm going to give you the wisdom. If you just keep praying for wisdom, I'm going to give you the wisdom to really be able to understand how to make this business incredible. So just keep praying for my wisdom. Keep doing what I'm telling you to do and I will take care of you. And so that's kind of what we did. So help me understand just the progression a little bit more of like just how the business and the income got going in those early years. You said years one and two went well, then three was okay. Like just what was the revenue at that point? I mean, what were you able to get going as you were first getting going? Well, so at that time, this is before I really was knew anything about managed money or fee-based. But what I did know for um, the people we were working with is if we rolled money out of a pension, we needed to have an option for it to provide lifetime income. And the problem with leaving pension money there at Chevron, which lots of companies are like this, so it's not just Chevron, but if you leave the pension money there and take it as an annuity, you know, as just pension, if you're married, then you're picking joint survivor. Well, what happens is if if both of you, let's say a year after you start your money, you're out there on the road driving and, the, and you're killed in a car wreck and the two of you die, then Chevron keeps the rest of that pension money. And that's just how the, you know, a lot of company plans are designed. So I knew that we needed to be able to have a better alternative. We knew about annuities. And so part of the money was going into annuities. And even though the temptation was, let's take all of the commission up front, we were never those people. So we were the ones that did a step down and we said, well, let's take a a chunk of commission up front and then let's take the, you know, trails. Let's always have trails. And so that was one of the early on, one of the, really wise decisions we made is we never took all of the annuity income up front. We always had a trail. So we knew we were building in trails. And then with the 401k money, at that time, we were putting together mutual fund portfolios that we were using. Since then, you know, last six years, we've moved on from that and it basically is fee-based. But that too, we knew wasn't just a one-time payment. So that early on was our, our strategy is, is we want to continue to, to put the investment products in place in a way that it would would pay us trails, not just that whole upfront commission to help us get to the next paycheck. So you, I, I guess it sounds like early on, you were sort of trying to do the balancing blend, right? If I do everything, well, there wasn't much fee-based back then, but you know, if I, if I do everything with you know, level I C-shares or C-share style annuities, like I, I just may not get enough dollars out to pay the bills, especially with six kids. But if I take all of it up front, then by year five, I'm still starting over from scratch. So you were trying to find the balancing point of, I want enough trails that I'm building something over time, but I can't take it all levelized because it's too slow of a ramp up. You know, the two two year severance only gonna go so far. Exactly. And and one of the cool things was the December before John left, we had paid off our house, which that was our last debt. And so we were completely debt free. 
So all we were working with was just our normal, you know, regular bills. And like I said, I'm, I'm super frugal. And so we really, our monthly budget was very easy. We knew we could make our monthly budget in what we were earning. It, as long as we were good with, you know, those, those months that we made more than our monthly budget, we needed to put back into our savings for those months that we might make less than our monthly budget. But because we had no debt, that was another huge blessing when we started this business was we started it completely debt-free. And even in that year that we only made 30000 we never had to borrow any money as we were building this business. So we built it without debt. So just ratcheting down household and personal expenses to the extent possible so that you don't need as much upfront in the first place. Exactly, which was huge. I've always been struck for all the discussion out there of like the cost of starting businesses in general. Like advisory firms, I mean, relative to like starting a, a restaurant where you got to take down a big lease and kitchen equipment and 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 deck out the whole place. Like, there's not a lot of actual upfront overhead costs for starting an advisory firm. What kills most people is their household expenses until the business kicks off enough money to make the math work. Exactly. It, it, and so, so if you can be really smart there and, and prepared and, you know, like I said, for us, have zero debt before you start the business, it takes a lot of that strain off of you of how much money do I need a month to be able to pay my monthly bills. The other thing I've, I have found over time is that when you don't need that next sale, it's a lot easier to be the best for the client. When you don't need that money, when you can truly sit back and and it's not all about the money, you then can really think, okay, what is the best investment for this client at this time? So what was it that was going on that things started out going okay and reasonably well, and then year four was so awful? Like what what happened? What derailed or like wasn't wasn't manifesting as hoped that you got a couple of years in and then it got worse? Well, because basically what one of the things we figured out, my so John, my husband, he is incredible when you get people in front of him. He is so good, very articulate, does not love to be on the phone to make those calls, to set those appointments, to do those things. And at that point, he's the one that knows these people better than I do. Some of them, I don't even know. He knows them. But I couldn't, I can do enough to motivate him to get on the phone to make the call. And, and I really think it was just all part of God's perfect plan in that John needed to go back into oil business and I needed to take over this, this business myself. And I needed us to hit rock bottom for me to really understand that if I wanted this to be successful and I'm not a quitter, I had to turn to God and I had to go, okay, God, this is your business. I just want to do it amazing. And so I need you to help me know how to do that. And really, once that happened, in year five, we did really a whole lot better in year five. But by that point, we had already made the decision for John to go back into the oil business. And I was learning how to take this over myself while I was still doing all these other things and have that confidence that. And, and I think that in this male dominated industry, I think that's where a lot of women struggle is 
they're afraid that they're going to fail because they're such a minority in this business. I, I remember going to LPL conferences and I mean, there's just so few women there and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, all these guys, they're smarter than I am. They're better than I am. Like they know how to do it better. You know, they're, they're crushing it. And here I am. Well, what I found out years later Now, when I go to conferences and I start talking about my business and my niche, like I have the male advisors going, oh my gosh, you have an amazing practice. Can you share some of your ideas with us? You know, and so it's kind of rewarding for me when I I have the opportunity to share because I know it's I know it's not me. I know it's not my knowledge. I know that all that I'm doing today is because God gave me that knowledge. And that was the cool thing when I went through the to get my CKA, my Certified Kingdom Advisor certificate. All of the information that they shared, ninety five percent of it, I was already doing in some form or fashion that God had already gave me that wisdom along the way. So it was really neat for me to see, oh my gosh, God, you really have been working all along here, giving me the tools, giving me the ideas, you know, giving me the focus on this business so that you could make your business successful. So for those who aren't familiar, can you share a little more just about what the CKA, what the Certified Kingdom Advisor designation and program is? So, so one of my, one of the advisors at Gateway, he came to me and this now has been over two years ago. And he said, Melanie, I have found the designation for you because he and I were both struggling with, okay, do we need to go and get our CFP? I mean, I knew I was a CPA and that brings a lot of, of credentials. It brings a lot of value to the table, but I was struggling. Do I need also to get my CFP? And so was he. And so then he found the CKA and it's called Certified Kingdom Advisor. And basically this certification is done through Indiana Wesleyan University. So you have to take a college class through them in order, that's step one, in getting this certificate. But basically what it is, is all financial principles from a biblical worldview. So the writers of this CKA, the creators of it were Ron Blue and Larry Burkett were the two of the main creators of this program. And so when when this other advisor came to me and he said, Melanie, why don't you do this? And I saw who was the creator of it. I mean, I was immediately on board because John and I have taught, we taught Larry Burkett. We taught Dave Ramsey at our church. We taught Ron Blue at our church. We've taught all that in the past. So I was like, oh my goodness, if I can get a credential behind my name, that means that I have gone through and I have studied intensely what the Word of God has to say about finances, because there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible about money or related to the topic of money. And and because of that, then I, I know, I believe God has so much to say to us about money. And many of my clients are Christians. And so I thought that would bring so much value to them in, in that I'm also helping them use their money to glorify God, to bring, to, to really bring honor and glory to him and to be wise stewards of all that he's entrusted them. So in this program, and, and right now, there are only approximately 
15 to 1600 certified kingdom advisors nationwide. So there's not a lot that have actually gone through the program. It started in 2016 and you take this class. And so for me, in any college class, like I want to make a high A. In fact, I really want to make a hundred. Like that's my goal. And I realized that was kind of probably not, you know, a realistic goal, but I want to be as close to a hundred as I can get. Well, what I didn't realize was on this online class, this was my first online class ever and technology is not my best friend. And so part of this class is you have this ginormous, uh, lots of information about this one couple, their, their family, because throughout the entire course, they have 19 modules, you're going to use that family's financial information and their history and, you know, everything about them as the case studies each week in doing each of your case studies for this for the, the course. So I, I finished that course and then you have to take a five-hour proctored exam. So you're sitting at your desk or wherever you, you know, decide you're going to be and you have your webcam on and there is someone literally watching you for the entire five hours. And in the test, they give you a hundred multiple choice and then they give you this huge case study that you have to do and they they give you the questions that you have to address in that case study and you have five hours to do it. I did not leave that desk for five hours. I didn't take a drink of water. I didn't eat anything. I didn't go pee. Like I literally sat there until the last 20 seconds of that test. We finished the test and I told my, my kids, I, I think I failed. I failed. I failed this. I've worked so hard and I think I failed because tests kind of petrify me, especially when I'm, you know, literally being watched the whole time and I'm trying to think and, and you have all these scriptures that you've memorized that they want that to be a part of it. And you have to wait six weeks to get your grade. So I wait the six weeks and I'm, you know, back and forth. Well, maybe I passed, you know, maybe I didn't back and forth. Well, come to find out I did pass. And I think I ended up making like a 97 on the test, which I was so excited. Then after the test, then you have this whole application process that you have to do. And so it is, you have to get a recommendation from your pastor. You have to have recommendations from several of your clients. You have to fill out your testimony. You have to fill out, you know, a, a thousand words on what you believe about stewardship. And so there's all this different stuff that you have to do. And then you send that in. And then it's another month to six weeks for them to decide for kingdom advisors to decide if they will accept you as a certified kingdom advisor. So it can only be people who are CPAs, attorneys, so JDs, and anyone that's been in a a financial advisor for at least 10 years, or if you have like your CFP, then there's some other stuff you can do to get it earlier than the 10 years if you've already gone through the CFP program. So they're trying to make it a lot more challenging to get a CKA. Like it's, you know, not, they're not going to just give it out to everyone. It's a, you know, it's a, it, it's not an entry credential. It's an, after you've got some other credentials yes. and experience kind of program. Yes. Which has been incredible for me. I loved the whole process of that. And I love, you know, I'm more proud of that designation than my CPA just because of what that truly means to me. And because faith is my why of why I do this business. And so that one is just very special to me. 
Then help us understand, as, as you made the transition, John goes back to the oil and gas business. You're now steering on your own. But the niche had kind of evolved around John and his personal networking connections back to the industry. So like, how does marketing work come year five when he's transitioning out, you're steering, you're ready to buckle down and focus on the business. But a lot of the growth was coming through his network into the niche. So how does growth work now? Well, so by that point, we already now have some clients, okay? And so those clients are going back to their peers at Chevron and they're telling them, hey, you know, if you're getting ready to leave Chevron, you need to go talk to Melanie because she knows the whole process. Plus, by putting John back in the oil industry, then he's got a lot more opportunity in his day-to-day and as he's going out to lunch somewhere in, in, in hearing who's retiring. And then him being the spokesperson and say, hey, well, if you're retiring before you make your final decision, why don't you go see Melanie and just sit down with her? Because she also knows the tax side of everything. So he was my little promoter. Out, out in the oil business to send people my way, which was a huge help. It really, it, that really made a difference as well. You know, as, as we've always said in the industry, like one of the best ways to grow is having a strong center of influence. So, you know, it doesn't hurt when it happens to be your spouse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that helped a lot. Interesting. And, and so how did it grow and evolve from there, because I think you had said like early on you were doing more annuity business. Now you're doing more fee-based business. So how did the business evolve in terms of like what you're doing and how it's structured from early days to where you are today, you know, 15 plus years later? So he went back in the business around 2006 is when he went back in the oil business. And at that point, then I kind of, you know, took the business on myself. I'm still homeschooling, got these kids at 16. They're going to Midland College. I'm putting them in college and starting them there. And so the more kids I can get into college, then the more of my time is freed up to work on the business. But within a few years, I realized, oh my goodness, I need some help. Like I I don't love technology. I don't want to do that side of it. The paperwork, you know, that's not my favorite either. I just need to have time to focus to be in front of people and get people here. So at the time I banked with Wells Fargo and one of the young men that was my banker, I kind of gotten to know him a little bit. Now we're in the, you know, the, the middle to end of 2009 and I'd gotten to know him and and one day I just sat down with him and I asked him his story because he was, I could tell he was a super hard worker, but I didn't know what his backstory was or what his dreams in life were. And so when he's telling me his story, I mean, he came from a horrible background and, and basically from the age of eight to 18, he was in 10 different foster homes and a group home horrible. So at 18, when he goes out on his own, there's no mentor there. There's nobody to encourage him to go to college. And he tried to do a few classes and work full time and support himself and all this. But, you know, I mean, he just needed to focus on making money to support himself. But fast forward to this time, now he's the manager of the branch that I go to. And so I was like, well, hey, what are your dreams? Are you wanting to stay in the banking business? Like, what have you thought about? He was like, you know, honestly, he said, I know this, uh, this can probably never happen, but I really would like to go to college. And I was like, okay, well, what if you come work for me part-time as many hours as you want, I will pay you hourly, and then you go to college 
And I will give you the same deal that I gave my kids for college. If you make an A in a class, then I'll pay for the class in books. If you make a B, we're going to half it. You pay half, I pay half. If you make a C, you're going to pay for all of it because that's not a good investment. So he was like, well, yeah, I'll take that deal because I like to make all A's. Okay, me too. So he starts working for me. And then he, he gets his two years here at Midland College because he made a 4.0. He gets great scholarships. He moves on to UTPB. He's still working for me, going to school full time. Then he gets his master's. And then he comes to me. He goes, I really want to get my CPA. And I was like, I think you should. And so he gets his CPA. So now we're fast forwarding to 2015, which it was so amazing to me to be able to be a part of his life and help him to achieve something he really wanted. And he's helping me in my business. So in 2015, Obamacare's come in. I get my health insurance through John. And, and, and he said, he comes to me, he goes, look, I am so sorry. I love working for you. But if you aren't providing health insurance, I've got to go somewhere where it is. This, this whole you know, health insurance thing is now a nightmare. So I said, I fully understand. He said, but but can I still do all of your tax work, all the tax returns for the clients who you want to do tax work? Absolutely. So he's kept doing that. So since 2015, he's my tax person. So he leaves. Well, I obviously I need help. So my son, Joel, that works for me now, he graduates at the end of 2015, December of 2015, as a petroleum engineer. Well, there are no jobs. We are in the midst of a bust. And so he can't find any jobs of his graduating class. Two females get a job and none of the guys get a job. So he's working three jobs at the time. It comes April. I'm in the midst of trying to do get tax work to Jesse, see clients. You know, I'm still homeschooling people. And so I'm like, well, hey, Joel, why don't you come to work for me while you're trying to find a job? You know, we got to wait till the oil business turns around. And that way you can work for me. I need help. You can see what you think. So he starts working for me. Within six months, he was like, you know what, mom? I don't want to go in the oil business. I want to work here. I love what you do and how you get to help people. He said, so I want to be your licensed administrative assistant. Awesome. So he starts, you know, taking the exams and doing all of all of that to get completely licensed in everything. Now, I would say by year eight in the business, I have a steady, a decent stream of referrals. I'm not advertising. I'm only taking referrals. And, and part of it is because of the, the processes that we've put in place to help clients have a wow experience when they when they come see us. And that that's something that I don't want us to not get in because I really want I really want people to hear that. But anyway, at this point, I'm having steady referrals come in. So I know I can't do this on my own. And even with a licensed admin, I still in the back of my mind, remember, I'm a forward thinker. So in the back of my mind, I'm like, I need a succession plan. And Joel, my licensed admin, who I adore him being here, he's not someone that likes to be in front of people. He's not the person that's going to go, I want to tell that person they're overspending. I don't want to give bad news. So you know, sometimes we have to give bad news. And, and I knew that. And so I was like, I know you, you don't love bad news. So we need someone else to give the bad news. So I'm still, I'm praying, God, you know, who's this succession person? I mean, I got all these other kids. Well, at that point, I also, a year later, 2016, I have a different son who, Joel's older brother, who graduated from SMU Law School, who he wanted to do estate planning. So he goes and works for someone for a while. And then he comes to me and he goes, Mom, I really want to have my own firm. You have your own business. I want my own business. Okay. 
So I said, do you think you can do it? He was like, absolutely. I said, okay, well, I will use you to bring you in to do seminars for me, for my clients. And then any of my clients who want to use you for their wills or wills and trust, then you can do their wills and trust. And through your business, you charge them whatever you would charge anyone for, you know, will and trust. And then you can start your own, you know, law firm. So we did that. So my son, that's the attorney, Josh, he does all the wills and trusts for the majority of my clients that come in. And they love that because they trust me. So they immediately trust him. Then a year and a half ago, my youngest son who went to SMU business school, he had been working for Oracle, worked for Oracle in in Austin for three years, found the girl he was going to marry. She's a CPA, moves to Houston. Oracle had said, oh yeah, you can work remote. And then he gets there and they're like, oh yeah, but we forgot to tell you you're working remote, but you can no longer promote in the company because we don't really have a location in Houston. So, so sorry about that time. What happens? He's looking for other jobs. He has six offers on the table. COVID hits. All those offers go away. Still working for Oracle. And we're, you know, we, I'm still praying about it. God, what, you know, what do you want for Jacob? Well, he finds this other guy who has his own business that he does websites starts working for him. The guy tells him after a month, he says, um, Jacob has met all the quotas. He surpassed every other new, new person. The guy comes to him and he says, I'm sorry, but I don't like the way you're selling. And Jacob said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you're losing me customers. And Jacob was like, well, why? why? How am I? I I'm I far surpassed what you, you set your expectations for me. He said, well, because when you sell something, you're not overselling that person. And when that person says they don't need anything, you're not selling them something anyway. So you're losing me business. And Jacob was like, I don't work that way. I'm not that person. I, I can't do that. And so the guy said, okay, well, you have a week. If you can't decide that's the way that you're going to sell, then you need to find another job. So he and his wife start praying. And and as he's praying, it just keeps coming to his mind. Mom needs a succession plan, but I don't want to just go to her because I need a job. You know, is this the right thing? So they're praying. Well, at the end of that week, it's July the fourth weekend. We're all meeting in Dallas. And he's like, okay, well, we're just going to present this to mom and see what she thinks. Because we really feel like this is the direction that I want to go to work for her. So sure enough, I've been praying that whole week. He's been praying. We don't know each other's praying. We come together. He starts telling me he wants to come work for me. I start crying. He's like, why are you crying? I said, he goes, did I ruin the weekend? I said, no. I said, you are the answer to prayer that I have been praying that God, I really felt like I was ready for you to come on, but I was not going to be the one to bring it up because I don't ever want any of my children to feel they're obligated to work in this business. And, and so it was a wonderful confirmation that he was supposed to come in. So he's the one training to be me. So our plan right now, what we do right now is when we have a new client, they have a pension, they have a 401k. That pension, we're going to do part or all into annuities and that 401k, we're going to roll into managed money. And I use AssetMark as my money manager and the group I predominantly work with there is Clark Capital because they have a phenomenal plan that my clients get. They have a bucket strategy that my clients totally understand. And the cool thing about that is, is, you know, when we had March of last year, March of 2020, I had three clients to call in because they were nervous their money had gone down. The rest of my clients remembered that in our bucket strategy, bucket one and two are very conservative. And so we can deliver money from there for up to, if we needed it, 10 years in their plan without hurting the other part of their money that's totally equity in the managed money. And so it's it's really neat that I don't have people 
questioning. Part of what I've learned, though, over time is that I have a group of seven charts that I use. So before I roll out a plan to people, on that, and that's going to be our third meeting. Our third meeting is when I roll out a plan. And on that rolling out the plan, I have seven charts that I go over as of the why behind my recommendation. And once I get then to my recommendation, I have very few times that I have people question what my recommendation is because they understand the why behind the recommendation by the charts that I've gone over. But the bigger part of why I don't have pushback 99% of the time is because of meeting one and meeting two. In meeting one, I tell people, if it's a couple, both people have to be in attendance for me to meet with them. This is with my prospects. I tell them ahead of time, meeting one, I need two hours of your time. I'm going to schedule two and a half. And I want you to know in that meeting, don't bring any of your financial stuff. I don't want to see it. We are going to get to know each other because just like you're interviewing me, I'm interviewing you. And I have an incredible client family and I don't want any poopy clients. So I want to make sure that I'm the right fit for you and you're the right fit for me. So we're just going to get to know each other. So when they come for meeting one, I do a very brief little, you know, who I am and why, my why of why I'm in this business and why I want to help you be successful in retirement. And I kind of introduce my family because three of my kids I basically work with. So that's done in a very short period of time because I have myself a note, only talk 25% of the time. I want them talking 75% of meeting one. And my top priority by the end of meeting one, I want to connect with that wife because I know whether she has ever worked a day in her life, I know for a healthy marriage, that wife has a lot of influence over that husband. Yeah, guilty as charged. If you get into a meeting with my wife and I together, I will probably do more of the talking. Don't mistake that as assuming that I'm the primary decision maker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. So if I see that the husband is doing most of the talking, I will then start directing the questions to the wife. And and one of the things to keep in mind that I've found over the years, it really helps in building trust. If you want to build trust quickly, start with questions they immediately know the answer to. Like, where did you grow up? How did you meet? Tell me about your first date. When did you get married? What is your wedding anniversary? How many kids do you have? Tell me about your pets. You know, have you ever traveled? What's your favorite trip? You know, ask them easy questions that they don't have to think a lot to answer. You know, they know where they grew up. Ask them about what is your first recollection about money? Like, what do you remember? And before the age of 10, tell me if you have a good idea about money or a bad idea. I mean, just questions that help them open up to you and get them talking and laughing. And and I want to know about their hobbies and what do you do in your spare time and all of these things. And so I have a list that I, I sit in front of myself. It has 34 questions on it in case we get stumped that I can look back down in my list and I can go, oh, okay. And it reminds me of another avenue that we can take that really has nothing to do with their actual investments. So by the end of that meeting, I want to have connected with that wife. And I have a a great story on one of the couples that I met with here. Now it's been about three years ago. 
So this couple, they, at Chevron, you have the opportunity to have a, a financial advisor provided for you when you get to a certain level. We're in Midland, Texas. This financial advisor is going to be flown in and, and you get one hour of his time once a quarter or once a year. I don't remember how often, but but very minimal time each time. Well, this couple had been using him, their, their financial advisor through Chevron, they had been using him for two years. So they had already started down the path of they had this particular advisor only did the fee-based side. He didn't do anything with annuities. So he basically said, well, you know, you should just take your, your pension as an annuity. And of course, no other, you know, not telling them the ramifications of doing that. So they had already filled out the paperwork, send it in. Well, you have a window of 30 days when you can change your mind on that. And then after that, it's locked in stone. Well, several of the people that are my clients that he works with said, you need to go see Melanie one time before your 30 days are up because we think you've made the wrong decision. So on day 28, he and his wife come to see me. So, and I already know ahead of time, we're on day 28. So I start asking my questions. Well, I focus my whole attention on her. She starts talking and talking and talking. And I look over at him and he, I could see the shock on his face. Like she's just telling me all kinds of stuff. And so at the end of that meeting, he was like, my wife in the two years that we've gone to that other financial advisor, she has not even shared a tenth of what she has shared in this one meeting with you. So they leave. And I said, well, y'all just go home and think about, you know, if you know, if you think we're a good fit, and I'll think about if we're a good fit. They go home. Their home is, is 10 minutes from here. 15 minutes from their meeting, he calls me up. He's like, Melanie, my wife loves you. Uh, now this wife, she didn't work the whole time they were raising their kids and they are in their 60s. So she has not worked in 30 something years. But because of the fact she loved me so much and he knew that I would take care of her if something happened to him, he was like, you are our advisor. I am coming back and you need to tell us what we need to do. And so it was the coolest thing for me to see because, you know, the statistics out there that 65 to 70% of women are going to leave the husband's financial advisor. It's out there for a reason because so many male advisors don't understand that wife's importance and how much you need to connect with her, whether she has worked a day in her life because they are are where they are because of her. She has helped them, whether she's worked or not. This woman, she's as frugal as I am. And because of her, they have the assets that they have today because she was so frugal at home. So that's our meeting one. Meeting two is I've given them a list of these are the important pieces of information I need you to bring back for meeting two. Meeting two is also going to be two hours to two and a half. I, I schedule two and a half. So they bring back the information. Once again, on my card, talk only 25% because as you can tell, I love to talk. So I'm collecting the information, but as I am, I'm asking them questions and I'm getting them to talk more. And I've got questions now since I, I met with them the first time. And so after meeting two, we have met for either four to five hours and they have talked 75% of the time. But the time that I've talked, I've been very transparent and I've shared stories. I love sharing God stories and I've shared lots of God stories with them in that five, four to five hours that we've met. And they trust me by the end of meeting two. And so I, and I understand not, not most advisors can't do that because they haven't built their book of business that they have that much time to invest in a prospect. But I know that when a prospect walks through my door, 
they're usually going to have at least a million dollars. So I know I have that time to invest in them and to make sure and make that connection. So if I decide that I'm not going to be a poopy client and I want them, that basically I'm going to be able to have their trust and they're going to want me. So out of curiosity, where did this like guiding list of 34 questions come from? You remember when I said that I'm always praying for wisdom? Remember that? So I just, I, I started a list one day of, of conversation questions. You know, the one little point I heard someone say is in that first meeting, have them talk 75% of the time. And I'm like, how's that going to happen when I know how much I love to talk? But what questions am I going to ask them? So I just started praying, okay, God, I need some questions. So I just started a list. And at first it was 10 questions and then 15. And and then the other day when I did for Gateway, I did listen to your peers. And one of the guys on there said, hey, Melanie, can I get that list of questions? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to just sit down and type all these up in a nice little list because it would be it would be great instead of me every time a new couple's coming, creating a new, you know, my new list. I'm just going to have a master list. And so I I did the other day. I sat down, created my master list, sent it to him, said, well, here's my master list. And these are all great topics that will get people to talking and will help them feel comfortable. And I tell them before I ask, before I, I start asking them questions, I tell them, by the way, I am going to be writing when you're talking because I don't want to miss any of this information. And I want to type it up after to put in your notebook because I want all of this recorded. I want to know you. And the best way for me not to forget anything is for me to take notes. And I had one lady tell me, she said, I have never had an advisor take notes about things that were not related to my finances. She said that impressed me so much that you cared enough about the other aspects of our life that you would take notes about them. So it, would you be up for sharing the question list out for advisors who are listening to the, the Absolutely. episode here? I am all about helping other people, you know, just to, to be able to do better in their business. So absolutely, I would love to share my questions to encourage conversation list. So so for just for folks who are listening, this is episode 262. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 262, in the show notes section, we'll have a, a, a link out to Melanie's questions. I really, really appreciate you being willing to share. Absolutely. No, my pleasure. So tell us just about the the state of the business as it exists today. Like how many clients or revenue or AUM, however you you measure, like what's the what's the size and scope of the businesses exists today? So I have about 150 million AUM, and that is 110 client families. And of that 110 client families, of those, I have 20% of that is ministry clients. So they don't fit in my ideal niche, or they may be in the oil business, but they're not in my over a million dollar kind of category. But I believe in, as in everything, that we need to give back. And so this is people that I am willing to help so that they can also be successful, even though, you know, they don't fall really in what I'm looking for. So clients that you would either do for for no fee or very small fee, just as as a as a service back to the community. Exactly. Is that literally a target? Like I twenty percent of my clients will be ministry clients, and I and and you try to keep that balance, or just that's just sort of how it's worked out in practice. 
It really is kind of how it worked ha- has worked out because one of the things I'm all about is giving and and basically I, I want my clients to be about giving as well. One of the cool things we do is for Thanksgiving. So I have a favorites list. So when you become one of my clients, you get a favorites list and I have like, I don't know, 15 things on here. I want your favorites of all these different things because when I do stuff for my clients, I want to know it's their favorite. Because like if, if you do something for me, I'm going to be excited. But if you do something that's my favorite. Like if you give me chocolate, yay, I'm probably going to share that with my kids unless it's dark chocolate. Now, if you give me dark chocolate, I I don't know that I'm going to share with my kids because that's my favorite and I love it. And so I want to bless my clients in things that are their favorite. So I send out a list. They have to fill it. Husband one line, wife the other column. And then when I get that back from them, basically I take that one of the things on there is charity. And I say, I want you to do all your favorite charities. And so they kind of do all of their favorite charities. And for Thanksgiving, we send out $100 to each of our clients' favorite charities in honor of them. And then we do a Thanksgiving letter to basically say, here's all the places we've been able to bless because of our client family. This is a way that that I'm giving back. And I want you you to give back at Thanksgiving as well. So that's just one of the things that we do. But some of the other ideas, and this is, you know, something for if you haven't segmented your business, that is always something you really need to do. So we have platinum, gold, silver, bronze ministry. Now my platinum and gold, they really are ones that we go above and beyond all the time to really impact them because I want them to understand that you know, that that these are the people that I want to be super raving fans because I want to replicate my platinum and gold. So once they become a client, they've done their favorites list, we make them up a bag. And in that bag, we have all kinds of fun things from their favorites list, their favorite snacks, their favorite wine. We have um, gateway magnets. We have a little glass cutting board that says, friends are the family we choose. And so, and then there's a handwritten note. I do lots of handwritten notes to the platinum and gold clients. Handwritten note, thanking them for joining Gateway. So now they're a part. I have a notebook for them, a Gateway notebook. And in there is all of their paperwork and it has dividers where they can put literally everything in there. They can put their tax return, their will, any other thing they want to put in there. We've got dividers in there for them to be able to do that. And then we are always doing things where we can go out and give to them personally. So for Valentine's, we do these little butlets. They're they're red velvet buntlets and they're less than $5 and we hand deliver them to anyone for that, anyone within two hours of us, we go deliver these hand buntlets. Then for Christmas, for the the platinum and gold, anyone that's in with, within five hours, we deliver a Kringle. And none of my clients have ever heard of a Kringle. And if you haven't, go look it up. It's this amazing Danish parish. It's got s- stuff in the middle and it's got an icing on top. And we've already figured out what their favorite Kringle is. So we deliver it to them for Christmas for them to have with their family. So we're hand delivering to these people at the end of the year. And then the ones that I can't hand deliver from platinum and gold, we send them in the mail with a note that basically says, please share with your family. And, you know, remember, we're thinking of you at the Christmas season. And then we do for Mother's Day and Father's Day, we send out little gift cards to them. And that way I can do it to all my clients. We send out $5 for either Starbucks or Sonic or Dairy Queen to go get a blizzard. And so we we shoot that out to everyone for Mother's Day and Father's Day. And we put a poem or something cool related to Mother's Day and Father's Day so that that we can impact everyone. And then on the platinum and gold people, we also do their birthdays. We send out a gift card to their favorite restaurant because they've already told me what it is. So now I'm sending 
sending you a gift card to, you know, on that favorite restaurant so that you basically can go and have a meal at your favorite place. And so we're just consistently trying to do, we have events, we have incredible events. Once a year, we have a Chevron retiree party event. So all of my retired Chevron people, all of my current Chevron people, all of my Chevron prospects, I want them to all come together. It's like a a Chevron reunion one time a year. And I want these prospects to see all the other people that are our cabin's clients. So it's a great way to meet them. Another great event is we do a, if someone's retiring, I try to get two retirees at the same time. And we do a Chevron retiree party for these two Chevron retirees. And I tell them each retiree, I want you to invite 10 couples each. And I want them to be from your peers, but I also want you to invite your adult children and their spouses. And so we have this, it's at the country club, we have the dinner, I get up and I say a few words about each one, and then I ask if anyone has a funny story to share about the two people retiring. Well, the last one we had, it went on for two and a half hours of people sharing stories, and it was funny stories, and it was heartfelt stories, we were, we were laughing, we were crying, and afterward, those adult children came up to me and they were like, oh my goodness, like that was incredible, no one has ever done anything like that for our parent, and, and the company didn't do it anything like that. This is amazing. And so that's a great way for us to reach out to that next generation too and impact them and show them that we care for their parents more than just the money. It is always more than just the money. So just as you look back over it all, what's what surprised you the most about building an advisory business over the past 15, nearly 20 years? The thing that has surprised me the most is how much this is my passion, how much I would absolutely love every single day that I get to come to work and I get to serve people. That's what surprised me the most. I mean, I kind of thought at the beginning that this was my calling and my passion, but until my husband left and I had it all on my own, I did not realize how much I would love what I get to do and how I get to impact people's lives. Because one of the things that I try to help people think about is, what do you want your next chapter to look like in retirement? You know, most of my guys, my Chevron guys, they've been working for 25, 30, 35, 40 years, and their work has been everything, but they don't necessarily love their job like I do. So what can you do in this next chapter where you can make a difference and you can have a purpose? What are you passionate about? Where can you go serve? You know, there's so many volunteer opportunities. Think about how you want to make a difference in this next chapter, because this next chapter could be better than your last chapter if you are very purposeful about deciding how that is. And I also get to help people think about their money. Okay, do you really need to leave $5 million to two kids? No, you don't. They don't need that. Let's think about right now working to impact those places, those other charitable organizations that you are passionate about. Let's also think about using that exclusion. If you have kids that are great with their money, they would be much better off if you would impact their lives now with that $15,000 a year or $30,000 per couple that you could do for them right now if they're good stewards with their money. Let's not just wait until you die and you don't even get to see what impact impact you have, you know, that that you've had with the money that you were able to amass during your lifetime. So that's what surprised me the most is how much I would love every day of what I get to do and how I truly get to make a difference in other people's lives. 
And so how do you balance all of this with six children? And as you noted, like for much of this time, six children, you were homeschooling. Exactly. While building the business. Like just how does that work? Well, you know, I always struggled with that concept that I've that I heard for years and years and years. You know, as a woman, you can't have it all. You can't have it all. You know, if you want to be really involved in your kid's life, you can't also have a career. Well, for me, and I'm not speaking for anyone else, I'm speaking for me. For me, I say as a woman, you can have it all, but not all at the same time. Like it's not all going to happen at the same time, in my opinion. So, so now for the last six years, you know, we had two that were at SMU at the same time, one in business school, one in law school. We decided there, actually, it was the younger son, Jacob, who had the idea, why don't y'all buy a house here in the Dallas area so that we can have a place to live. We don't have to live on SMU's campus, but then y'all can come visit. So we said, well, at first I said, oh my gosh, why would I own a second home? And then as I thought about it more, I was like, you know, actually, that's a good idea. Um, And so we bought a house there. Um, it is a big house. So it was four bedroom, has a study, has a, a media room. I mean, the big house works as worked out great. But when we did that, my husband and I, we made a pact with each other and we're like, okay, one time a month, we are going to go to that Dallas house and we're going to have all the kids together. So we're going to encourage them as many of them as can come together once a month for the weekend and we're going to do fun things together. So now it's been six years, six years later, that is still one of our goals. One of the other things we do is we always have a family trip. So we travel together. We love to travel together. I get to work with, you know, three of my kids. So we are very much about work-life balance and we are very, very much about being super involved in our adult children's lives because they are our next generation. And that's who we are pouring into because I want them, and I believe they do, have the same kind of passion that I do for what I do. And and my son, who's the attorney, my clients will come back and they'll tell me, they'll go, oh my goodness, Melanie, your son has the same exact passion for his business as an attorney that you have as a financial advisor. We love working with him. And so... It has been challenging along the way. And like I said, when I had them in the front room and I was homeschooling and I was also doing this business, it was hard. It was really hard. And it was it was very time consuming and I had little time to sleep, but it was so worth it. Help me understand how this worked. I, like I get it a little bit more now as the kids are older, but like take me back to the first <laughs> five and 10 years when when the kids are all young and, and, and homeschooling is really like they're all home and you're trying to grow the business. Just how does that work? How do you manage to that? Or, or what are the trade-offs that just come with that if you make it work? Well, so one of the things that my husband came up with, John's, I mean, John is, he's brilliant. Like I, I already said, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I will work my tail off. Um, but John is really, really smart. And so he came up with this idea early on of that we would give our kids a list of everything that they had to do for that entire week on Monday. Every Monday, they got their list of all the assignments. For me, I thought if one math is good, oh my gosh, two is better. And if one history is good, well, two must be better. And and we need to read at least 35 books during our school year. Uh, but 
you know, maybe 40 or 50 would be better. So I was that overachiever as a homeschool mom. So they had their list and they typically paired off, you know, with their siblings and working together on trying to let's get our, our, our list accomplished. And I had different ones that worked at different speeds. And, you know, like Jacob, my youngest, he was my one that struggled the most, but he's the most persistent. So he wanted to be done with his list by Wednesday at noon. So he would bug me to death if, if I, for the stuff that I had to help with, help him with so he could get that list checked off because it's not just turning in the work. Then I've got to check it. Then I, and if you've done anything wrong, I got to give it back. You've got to correct it. You've got to give it back. I've got to recheck it until it's all right. And then when it's all right, then we can check it off. But what this taught my kids too, especially as I was building this business was that they had to learn to self-teach as well. So I would give them assignments and they had to read all the stuff and, and, and learn what, what the material was saying. And yes, they could come and ask me questions or they could ask their dad questions in the evening. But basically, I wanted to know first, have you read all of this? And what part of that did you not understand when you read all that? Because I have really, I mean, I do have smart kids. I have some that work harder than others on schoolwork, but I have really smart kids. And so it was like, I knew that for the most part, I could direct, I could be involved in some of their days worth of school, but I didn't have to be there. I didn't have to be like a normal teacher over them, you know, the whole time they were doing school. And then when they were up the business, if they finished their schoolwork, I might have a project for them. You need to go shred or I need this stuff filed or, you know, and so they were helping me up here doing some of the menial stuff that I needed help with, you know, as, as I'm trying to build a business when I don't have any clients here, you know, to meet with. So it was, a, it was a balancing act and I worked every night, usually till nine or 10, you know, before it was time to go to bed. It wasn't a lot of, I didn't watch a lot of TV back then. So what do you know now about building the advisory business that you wish you could go back and tell you from, from 15 years ago? Number one, I wish I could go back and tell me to be open and, and accepting of the fee-based side of it so much earlier. That's, that's one of the big things. Another um, thing. Why, why? Like just what, what's so different from what, what you know now from what you understood then? Well, because I, I think part of it back then was I was scared of the fee-based side of it. And, I, and part of that was I didn't understand it. And once again, you know, I, I never claimed to be the smartest person in the room. And like, you know, you love having tons of credentials behind your name. If I can't get a credential that I have made a top A in, I don't want it. Because that's that's just my mentality. I was I was um, valedictorian in high school and salutatorian in college because the person that was valedictorian was he had a photographic memory and he beat me by 0.03, and and so I am one of those super super hard workers. And so because I didn't understand the fee based side early enough on, it took me a lot longer to accept it and go, oh, this is a good solution for that 401k rollover of my business. The other thing I would say is as a woman, to my female advisors is just don't give up. We are really good at what we do because we understand the relationship side of the whole business and because we are so good at connecting with the client or couple. So don't give up. Just hone in on, on being really great at what you do and work 
at a level of excellence. And so I think those are two things that that I would have encouraged myself more back then that, hey, it doesn't matter you're a female, just keep going. Because there were times that I would, especially after conferences, I would say that was the hardest times for me is if I went to a, a conference, especially LPL conference, if I went to LPL conference all by myself, I would come home and I would be very discouraged because at that point in time, I didn't have the confidence I needed to go, I am building an incredible business. It would feel like to me, these, these men knew more. They had no use for women. You know, they didn't even want to listen to my ideas. And I wasn't bold enough to go, oh, but wait a minute. I've got a really good idea and you need to listen kind of thing. So is there other advice you would give younger, newer advisors coming into the business today and, and perhaps especially women coming in since... As, as we know, like there, this is still a very male-dominated industry by numbers. We have struggled to increase the number of women who are becoming financial advisors. You know, especially for women, I would say it would be, it, it would be good to find a female mentor, someone who's been in the business a lot longer than you that can give you some some really wonderful wisdom and encouragement. You know, that's the other thing that I think that women are really a lot better at is it as being encouragers. Um, I know that's one of my gifts is I'm an encourager. And and I think that for a female advisor, because it is, continues to be so male dominated, that I think it would be helpful for, for her to get a, a step up to know and, and reach out to a successful female advisor and really get some wisdom from them before starting in. But also as a female, I think that it's important to know what your own personal financial position is before you step into this business. And I would, like I said, I would highly recommend that you have your own house in order and be as close to debt-free as you can so you're not feeling like you have to literally take anybody that walks in that door. That you can kind of start and have an idea of what am I looking for? Am I looking for, uh, for divorced women? You know, am I looking for business owners. You know, what is it that I want that niche market to be? Because I really believe that if you can build it right from the beginning, you're not building in a bunch of, like I call them, poopy clients that eventually one day, you know, you want to get rid of. Because those poopy clients, they take so much of your time and energy and effort. And and it's just not worth it. I don't care how many, how much money they have. At the end of the day, it's not worth it. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes always comes up is just that the word success means very different things to different people. And so you, know, you built this wonderfully successful practice with $150 million under management with 100 plus client families. So the, the business has done well. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? So for me, success at this point is, is having the opportunity to truly impact others' lives for the kingdom. And how, and what I mean by that is, you know, we had a guy in here doing a podcast, doing a video for us that David had sent from his office. And this guy up front, you know, we had a conversation and he had told us that he was agnostic. And by the end of our, we had a whole morning together. By the end of it, he told us, so it was, it was Joel, Jacob and I, he said, I am so jealous of your faith. I have never seen someone so incredibly genuine who just wants to love people, just wants to help people, just wants to encourage people, value people, listen 
to people to help make a difference in their lives. So that's one thing. But the other, the second part of it is I want to continue to be, I mean, as for success for me is continuing to be that role model for my kids that my children can look to and say, you know, I, I'm so proud of my mom. She is, she loves helping people and that's her passion, but she also is an incredibly generous giver. Like my goal is to get to the point in my business where I'm giving away 50% of my income. That's my goal because I want to do for others. I want to impact, you know, others around me that are less fortunate. And so for me, success is definitely not all about the money. It's about how I can impact others' lives for kingdom purposes. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us and sharing on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Absolutely. It has truly been my pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.